Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Podcast. This podcast is a recording of our weekly Sunday School class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. But before you listen further, you may want to go to teachings.jim314.com and download the student and or teacher handouts so you can follow along visually and take some notes. Thanks for listening, come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app or to iTunes. Now let's get to this week's lesson. Let's try this again. Good morning. All right. All right. I thought I would start this morning by reading you a poem by William Shakespeare. But since he hasn't read you any of my stuff, I decided to skip it. Oh, come on. I thought that would kill. All right. Have your coffee. A little bit more. Let me try this one. So two cannibals are eating a clown, okay? The one cannibal turns to the other and says, hey, does he taste funny to you? Thank you. <laughs> that worked out better. All right, so those are some dad-type jokes because it's that time of year. It's Father's Day uh, for all you wearing your jerseys. I don't have one. This is my dad's favorite ball player, Roberto Clemente, played for the Pirates. And uh, welcome to Father's Day. So for the past four years, Father's Day has been a day that I anticipate with both eager expectation and abject terror. On the one hand, I'm expecting to get my favorite meal and a Sunday nap. And on the other hand, I have to prepare a lesson for Sunday school. And the days and weeks leading up to it proved to be a huge challenge. Uh, Case in point, the first time Jim asked me to do this, my dad died. that, that was a lot. It was, uh, so I haven't had, fortunately, nothing like that has happened in those other four years. Um, but yeah, that was huge. Um, but at the same time, it was one of the deepest and most meaningful times I've had in God's Word. And it really, I, I just can't put it into words. It was really how, how God reached down and, and gave us comfort and showed me things that I had never seen in a way that I had never seen it before. Um, so the passage from, from that Sunday was Galatians three twenty six through 4, 7. And the message uh, was that through Jesus Christ, we can become sons and heirs with God. So here we are in Romans talking about heirs uh, with Christ um, and heirs of the ultimate father. Um, so we referenced Romans 8 a lot in, in that lesson. And in other years, I've, uh, one of the other years I taught from Romans 8, your premier predestination destination, uh, otherwise known as uh, everything I need to know I learned in Romans 8. And here we are in Romans 8 again. So often we find in the scriptures that when God is trying to get your attention, he will say things multiple times. Um, so maybe uh, going back in Romans this year again for me, maybe this is the year that I get a handle on it. Or this is the year that I potentially bomb. Uh, so <laughs> Trish was telling me, remember now, it's not important how you feel about the lesson. It's important how I feel about the lesson. <laughs> so now, <laughs> you know my pain. <laughs> 
There's another trend that uh, gets carried out about this time of year at our house. Thursday through Sunday morning, everybody in the house knows that dad is going to be riding the struggle bus. Okay. I'm focused. I'm at the computer. I'm bug-eyed and sweating. And books and papers are all over the dining room table. And I just can't take it anymore. And so I'm jumping up every now and then to walk it off. Just walk it off. Just get back to it and walk it off. Uh, that was one of the dadisms I learned growing up. Walk it off. Played soccer since I was in kindergarten or before, and uh, you know, you get hit with a ball on the side of the head, you walk it off. I'm like, sure, that'll work. Um, get tripped, put down on the ground, walk it off. Get up, walk it off. Uh, the other one I learned from him, well, there are many, but um, another one that I definitely committed to memory um, and use it with my kids is, hey, some, someday you're going to need to know this. Uh, come here, let's, let's go through this together. Some, some year you're going to need to know this. And... Uh, that's been valuable. Um, I added some of my own dadisms uh, for my kids. Uh, Good night, please. You know, they're <laughs> staying up late. It's like, it's 1030. I'm tired. Good night, please. Um, or uh, another one that I like that kids hate is, uh, it'll grow back. You know. <laughs> 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 oh, don't worry, it'll grow back. You know. um, and the other one would be like, hey, up top, strong work. You know. So that last, last Father's Day, they... Uh, Made me a little uh, box, a little crate for my stuff, and uh, they kind of decoupaged on it, and one of the things on there was strong work. So I'm like, I know I'm getting through. Good deal. Um, so yet another routine for us at this time of year, for at least for me, uh, coming up to Father's Day is that work is going to be heinous. It just doesn't matter. It's going to be heinous. And then time that I thought that I had for lesson prep is going to get obliterated, and something odd is just going to happen uh, that finds its way into lesson. Um, like an example, as you, some of you know, I'm a circulating nurse in surgery, and there are days that we get some significant downtime, uh, but not, not this past week. Uh, Friday at work, especially when I was like, okay, we're going to just, we're going to really get into this and, and organize this, and uh, it was packed out. There wasn't a minute to spare, and there was just odd cases going on all day. And on my day off on Thursday, I was thinking, you know, this will be great. Uh, but the air conditioning went out at our house. And so I spent a good part of Thursday trying to diagnose and possibly repair the problem with the upstairs air conditioning unit. And uh, failing to do that, uh, we had, uh, had the AC guy come out. And he pretty much told us that like Jim's old bonsai tree, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's dead. And... Uh, so, which was kind of a blow, um, you know, the dollar estimate on fixing the problem uh, to get some air conditioning upstairs in our house again, uh, there's a comma in that. So, uh, other things that have happened, you know, lead, weird stuff leading up to the lesson is, uh, remember last year and the Jehovah's Witnesses showing up in my driveway? Uh, didn't happen this year. It was... Uh, but from last year, you found out that I legitimately grew up on a farm in the boonies. Uh, first car on the open road was a John Deere 4020. Um, so legitimate farm boy. Um, farm life, what, what? Uh, you from <laughs> Indiana. Close, both flat. Uh, so now I'm out of the farm. I'm onto the, I'm onto the burbs and on the end of a cul-de-sac. And so uh, with that cul-de-sac, we talked about taking the conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, something I learned from my dad, uh, taking that conversation straight to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. 
who they deny exists. They say, well, he's a, he's a God's force, you know, this and that, but he's not a person, to which the Bible completely disagrees, and, and that's where you, you want to take him to the word. Any, anybody that is going to object to you, they need to be objecting to the word, dealing with the word. So they can object with me all they want, and it's not going to matter for anything. But when they start dealing with the word, that's when the work gets done. And so we need to take them to the word. And so I kind of had that come up in a new way. You know, not everybody's going to turn, like at the end of the cul-de-sac, not everybody's going to turn and head to Christ. Um, But, you know, maybe never, maybe later, maybe you know, you just don't know. Maybe you'll never find out about that, but you've got to sow the word, and that's, that's what we took away from that lesson, hopefully. Um, and it hit me from a new angle this year because as I was getting ready, I was assigned to the trauma room earlier in the week, so there was a lot of prayer. Um, <laughs> so here I am in the trauma room going, wow, this gets bad. It's all me. Okay, great. But we have a team, so that's, that's good. So um, I'm getting the room ready, making sure that we're all prepped and so nothing's coming through yet for trauma. So I sit down, start working on the lesson for today, and I get pulled away to help in some different rooms. And uh, when I get back, uh, one of the anesthesia techs had, had seen my material sitting out and uh, went digging through there to find out whose who's is this. And uh, so I come back in the room, and he's ready. He's like, so you're Sean McGarvey, right? I said, yeah. What Bible are you teaching from? Isn't, is it the Koran? I mean, what's going on? Isn't that all the same God? I mean, don't all paths lead to him if you believe that kind of thing? Um, hasn't God murdered more people than any other person or thing in history combined? But God is love, right? And so, completely ready for that. Um, I answered him that, yes, I do believe in him. And yes, God is love. And he is just. And he is holy. And if he doesn't have all these attributes, he's nothing. As hard as it is for me to understand how that all works together, he's God, I'm not. And if all roads lead to him, then why did he send his son, Jesus, to die? Why was that necessary if all roads just lead to God? And I don't know if I said the right words and it felt awkward and it's given me a lot to think about because then I found out later that this is the guy, the guy that I was talking to was the same guy that a couple months back, um, you know, he helps out in all the rooms and he walked into one of the trauma rooms when we were having a big case going on and it was an unidentified uh, motorcyclist in a crash who died later that day from the injuries and when this guy went walking into the room, he identified the person on the table as his son. So, you know, any junk that I think I've gone through, um, this Father's Day is going to be a lot rougher for him. So, ultimately, I believe it's still a good thing to teach Sunday school because I'm likely to get knocked off my feet and forced in a fresh new way to confront the reality that in myself, I'm not qualified to be up here teaching (laughs) in myself. Hi, I'm Sean. I'm awkward and I mess up and I do dumb stuff. Uh, the enemy would be victorious in that moment in stopping me, but I know that it's not about me on my own, but rather about being in Christ. And God is doing things in, by his spirit in and around and through me, and this is not my show, so it's his. 
So as long as we understand that, then I think we can learn some great stuff from the Word today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Uh, thank you for forcing me to do this. Uh, thank you for loving us, Lord, and for sending your Son. Please open your Word and open our hearts to receive your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's hear from the Word, starting in Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not know, not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seeking an seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what was good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in the flesh I serve the law of sin. And here is the on-your-toes point. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? <laughs> for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by my flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on, on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And here we are at today's text, Heirs with Christ. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let's go through the text. So then, brothers, we are debtors. We are in debt. Anyone have a mortgage to pay? I do. This is worse. This is bigger. This is bigger, not worse. It was worse, but who are we in debt to? Not to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. So David Guzik makes a comment here. The flesh, again in the narrow sense of the sinful flesh, rebellion against God, gave us nothing good. So we have no obligation to oblige or pamper it. Our debt is to the Lord, not to the flesh. And we also just read it in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We are not obliged to the flesh. If you get nothing else, get that. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Did. Okay? You will die. Dies off, dead, lies of dying. He uses it a lot in Romans. You can see all the, uh, all the verses here, 5, 6, 7, 8, 15, twice in, uh, in 10, and, and moving on. So to this point in the chapter, die is used a lot because there's death. When, when we're talking about the flesh, there is death involved. When we're talking about the spirit, there is life. You ever been guilted into doing something, especially something stupid? All right. Let's say a friend or a so-called friend right, did something for you, and now they want you to do something in return. You owe me. So you did it. You wish you hadn't. Something bad happened, probably. Something got broke. Uh, you just you wish I hadn't done it. And you're like, why did I follow that? Why? That was stupid. But th this goes beyond that, okay? This is where Paul is saying to the flesh, that so-called friend, right? So you tried to kill me! And you're still trying! 
I don't owe you anything. Okay? That's, that's the sense of urgency. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. The flesh is trying to get you. It's trying to take you down. He constantly reminds us the living after the flesh ends in death. And we need that reminder because we're often deceived into thinking that the flesh offers life. Oh, it's going to feel so good. It's going to be awesome. You can get away with it. No. It leads to death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Guzakir, when we put to death the deeds of the body or force the sinful flesh to submit to the Spirit... We must do it by the Spirit. And here's the important part. Otherwise, we become Pharisees and spiritually proud. We think we're doing it on our own. We're following these external set of rules. But on the inside, we're still just these whitewashed tombs. It needs to be something from the heart, from the Spirit, leading our spirit. Speaking of leading our spirit, for all those who are led, and let's talk about the word led here. Um, I don't like that in this list of things, drive comes up. I think it's more of a lead or bringing or, you know, um, wooing us, drawing us, okay? That we are led by the Spirit. Um, and it says the same word used in Romans 2.4, which says, Or do you presume on the riches and of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So I don't see kindness, forbearance, and patience speaking of driving as with a whip with cattle. Um, this is a leading, this is a gentle, come, follow me. Uh, it's only fitting that the sons of God should be led by the Spirit of God. However, we should not think that being led by the Spirit is a precondition of being a son of God. Instead, we become sons first, and the Spirit of God leads us. So there's Guzik again. Paul didn't say as many as go to church, those are the sons of God. He didn't say as many as read their Bibles, those are sons of God. He didn't say as many are patriotic Americans, these are sons of God. He didn't say as many as take communion. These are sons of God. In this text, the test for sonship is whether or not a person is led by the Spirit of God. So how does the Holy Spirit lead us? We're led by guidance, by drawing, by governing authority. And interestingly, we're led as we cooperate with the leading. I like Spurgeon's quote on this one. It does not say as many are driven by the Spirit of God. No, the devil is a driver. And when he enters into either men or hogs, he drives them furiously. Remember how the whole herd ran violent, violently down a steep place into the sea? Whenever you see a man fanatical and wild, whatever spirit is in him is not the spirit of Christ. But where does the Holy Spirit lead us then? He leads us to re repentance. He leads us to think little of self and much of Jesus. He leads us into truth. He leads us into love. He leads us into holiness. He leads us into usefulness for the kingdom. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Did you see that part right in there? Y'all have, I don't have your handout. So is it in the notes that this is the first time up to this point in Romans, Paul is only using this term to describe Jesus? Is that in there? Don't miss that. Up to this point in Romans, this, this term sons is only used of the Son of God. Now it's used to describe us, and that's huge. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
And Elizabeth Johnson, a professor of Lutheran Institute of Theology in Cameroon, says, in the ancient Roman world, unwanted children were routinely abandoned or sold into slavery. Paul assures his readers that although we struggle in a world of sin and death, we have not been abandoned to lives of slavery and fear. In Christ, God has adopted us as God's very own children and heirs. So we're adopted. We're not going to become unwanted, discarded. He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Again, in Romans, Paul is the consummate attorney, making the airtight case in his, to his audience, who are those in Rome who are loved by God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jessica Norris this week uh, sent out uh, the text from Kroll's commentary, and she shared that in Paul's mind, there were four main consequences of adoption. The adopted person, number one, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a fully legitimate son in his new family and got a new father. Think of that in a spiritual context. That's what Paul's doing here. Okay? Paul understood his audience, knows that they know Roman law and Jewish law. This is how he's using adoption to describe what's happening to, for us in the body of Christ. Losing all those spiritual rights under the old master. Coming into God's family. New father. Number two, it followed that he became heir to his new father's estate. They were equal. So the heirs are equal. Okay. The adopted child equal to the blood-related sons. Number three, in law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out meaning all debts were canceled and wiped away as if they had never been. And number four, in the eyes of the law, the adopted person was literally and absolutely the son of the new father, the child of the new father. And that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Adoption's a big theme in our house, too. Um, many of you know about and prayed us through the process of adopting our daughter, Remy, but what you may not know is that adoption's big impact really took place a long time before that, I won't say how long. Uh, when my wife, Tricia, was adopted by her dad at the age of eight. Uh, his whole family, we were talking about it last evening, she said his whole family brought her in and loved her like she had always been there. It just fit. And then later, adoption was a major part of our understanding coming to Christ because of it. Um, how God brings you into his family like you'd always been there. You just fit. And then when we got married which will be 20 years on August the 2th, um, 20 years. And uh, she even wore her adoptive grandmother's wedding dress. That is the same wedding dress. And you know what's crazy about that? That though it did not fit Nana Chicky's biological daughter, it fit Trish without any alterations. It just fit. Which reminds me of a quote that Amy shared the first time that I was teaching this class. It was regards to Galatians 3.27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We are clothed in Christ. The more we grow, the more we fit into what Christ has given us. It just keeps fitting. Now, Trish at age eight was probably not ready for that dress. She could have gotten into it, sure. But at the appropriate time, it fit. Perfectly. 
so we're given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So let's talk about Abba. Okay, ABBA, the acronym for the artist names Agnetha, Bjorn, Benny, and Anifred, rose out of Sweden in the 70s to become one of the most successful and beloved pop groups in music history. Their success gave a more international flavor to popular music, broadening it beyond the English-speaking countries of origin. ABBA was truly an international phenomenon, topping charts and breaking records in England, France, Italy, Germany, Holland, and Scandinavia. For a few years, ABBA ranked second only to automaker Volvo as Sweden's biggest money-making export. I distract myself so I can imagine what you're going through. Uh, so that's, that was ABBA. This is ABBA, okay? It's different. Okay? And like Jesus, this ABBA is better. Okay? I'm a dad to four kids. And at different times, like Father's Day, we look back and remember how things started with them. So Matthew, who's now 17 and driving and has a job. <laughs> Father's Day gift ever. <laughs> so proud. I might just cry through the rest of the lesson. Uh, he started out with yuck. Okay, it was his first word, and it was followed uh, closely with what's that? Uh, Mike is now 15, and his first word was ball. 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 So with uh, Megan, who is soon going to be 13, I got my first da-da. So that was the first word for her. Da-da. And with Remy, I'm just claiming da-da because today is Father's Day. Um, but Abba is one of those first words, okay? That's the intimacy that we're talking about with crying Abba, Father, okay? The word Abba is the Aramaic affectionate diminutive for daddy. It represents the earliest speech patterns, not, not long after the babbling Abba, 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 okay? That's Abba, okay? Just like da, 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 da. Many of God's children lack a, this is a Morris uh, commentary. Uh, many of God's children lack a deep understanding of the Christian way, but that does not mean they are not genuine Christians. Being a Christian is being a believer, not having an intellectual answer to all the problems we meet as we live out our Christian lives, which is comforting to me. Because I'm, again, I'm Sean. I'm awkward and I do dumb stuff. So, and just like Amy's quote, this is a growing relationship in which the intimacy only deepens. It's not complex speech. It's a recognition of need and dependence on the one who can meet it and a confidence to approach him. It's affectionate, it's intimate, and it's personal. And it's fitting that those who are in fact sons have the spirit of the son in their hearts. This gives us both the right and the ability to cry out, Daddy, to God our Father, even as Jesus did to his Father. So we talk about Abba. Let's talk about the crying. It's not just Abba, but it's crying out Abba. We don't whisper Daddy as if we're hesitant to speak so affectionately. Instead, we cry it out. Uh, Calvin comments on this. I consider that this participle, uh, that this, okay. He wrote rather ornately sometimes. Um, I consider that this participle used to express great boldness. Uncertainty does not let us speak calmly, but keeps our mouth half shut so that the half-broken words can hardly escape from a stammering tongue. Crying, on the contrary, is a sign of certainty 
an unwavering confidence. You know that he's your father. You know that he desires that relationship. You know, you know that you can approach him. And to this point, the Jews weren't comfortable with that. It was all about the law and legalism. We have to approach him through another, and we couldn't just come straight to him. Their world was about to change. The other thing that's interesting about crying out, Abba, is that the one you're crying to knows your voice. Father knows his child. When my kid screams out something, I'm in tune to that. One of your kids screams out something, I may not be in tune to that, but one of my kids screams out something, that's my kid. I'm going there. We're going to take care of the need. And that's the same thing that God does with us. He knows his children. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness. And I, I like the Greek here, the samartareo, with and martyr. Basically the idea of, you know, you've got witnesses, but they're not on separate sides. No, they're sitting together. Okay? If you're going down, I'm going down too. But we're not going down because we're right. Okay? That's what you get here. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And why do we need that testimony? Again, take a look at who Paul is addressing. Paul's an attorney. He's addressing people who know the law. And back in Deuteronomy, it established that Jewish law required the mouth of two or three witnesses to establish everything. So these are the two witnesses to our salvation, God's spirit and ours, that witness to others and us that we are children of God. Plainly put, Paul says that those who are God's children, born again of the Spirit of God, know their status because the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that this is so. And that's not to say that there are not those who wrongly think or assume that they are God's children apart from the Spirit's testimony, but they ain't going to have the Spirit's testimony. Now, there are also Christians whose heads are so foggy from spiritual attack that they begin to believe the lie that they are not God's children after all. But the witness of the Spirit is still there. So if that's you today, hang on to that. Don't let the devil say, you're not his child. That's not real. You didn't really do that. That's his constant tactic. He's always trying to get in there. He's always trying to defeat the child of God. Just know from the attack that you're a child of God. He doesn't like you. The fact that he's putting those doubts in your mind should tell you something to you. A good thing. So you can blow them off. We're children of God. We don't have to wonder if we're really Christians or not. God's children know who they are. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is the legal progression that Jessica Norris's points brought up that Paul's laying out for his audience. So here it is in heirs. Because we're in Christ, we have the privilege of relating to the Father as Jesus does. Therefore, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Being a child of God also means having an inheritance. Here's the thing, though. In Luke 18, the rich young ruler, and he asked, you know, Jesus, what must I do to inherit? Here's where he missed the boat. The rich young ruler missed the point in that the inheritance is not a matter of doing. It's a matter of being. It's a matter of being in the right family. Now, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Now, so I got hung up this week on that one. I was like, provided? You know, it's kind of like that job interview question. Hey, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I'm like, convicted? Um, so... 
But I sent him an email. I said, so Jim, I'm mulling over this uh, suffering with Christ in the word provided on verse 17. Does the text here feel like it places salvation or heirship in a position conditional to a suffering? Or is it more of a, now that you done made the team, y'all likely going to suffer, but you'd be straightening in, right? Throw me a bone, big dog, Dialysius, which is my MMA fighter name. Uh, to which he responded, Never rule out the possibility that you could be meaning both, but I think the second is more likely. I don't find the concept that our suffering is a condition of our salvation taught in Scripture. We will suffer, yes, but repentance and faith are the conditions to salvation, not suffering. And my line of reasoning comes from, this is Jim again, uh, thinking about Scripture as a whole. Remember the Legos? Think down there, this piece, this piece, this piece, all the way through. So the whole, and not just this one text, which I think is much harder to do consistently. So I agree with that. And seeing it broken down to the Greek, you see, look at the words they're using here in the Greek. Um, if perhaps, if so, be, seeing, though, and I looked up some other translations in the NIV, it's if needed, or the King James, if so be. Uh, disciples, literal New Testament, didn't know that was a thing, but it says, since we are, uh, you know, provided we're suffering. Um, and then I go back to Johnson on this one. I liked her quote. Because we are joint heirs with Christ, we can expect to share in his sufferings as well as his glory. Don't miss that part. Okay, we're going to get the sufferings probably. Maybe not to the extremes that other people get them. Maybe worse than other people get them. The whole idea is that you're in Christ. And being in Christ, the world doesn't like you. Okay? So we can expect to share in his sufferings as well as his glory. Suffering is not evidence of separation from God, but a sign of living in the conflict zone between this present time and the age to come. A sign of being indwelled by the Spirit of God, which is at odds with the rule of sin and death. So the application, what do you do with this? Thanks for asking. Um, we are adopted by God and owe the flesh nothing. Our obligation is to live in the Spirit. And then another quote that Jessica Norris shared this week, I really... Mm, uh, we do not fear God as the slave fears his master. Rather, we love him as a son loves his father. And I want to go back to this. I originally put this under Abba or Abba or uh, Abba, and I want to end with it. Amy shared uh, after reading Hugh's commentary, and I love this. It's Abba, Father. It's not a reason cry, but a reflexive one, the cry of children, his children. We are his, and he listens when we call to him. What a great lesson for Father's Day. Hughes mentions that Abba is the Aramaic meaning dear father and is used in the same sense of when we say dad or daddy. And that the Jews themselves did not address God in this way. Jesus alone used to address, use this to address his father. As heirs and children of God, we can cry out to Abba Father, to our Heavenly Father. What a father. His love is unending and his grace and mercy are limitless. We can cry out in love, anger, sadness, and he allows us to come. And he calms us, rejoices with us, and lets us vent. Abba, Father. Enjoy your father today. Oh, did I already hit that one? All right. There was one other. Did we hit the what you do at your tables and all that? Is it there? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm done with this part, so lean in. <laughs> and pray at your tables. About five minutes, the lights are going off. We're going out there. Thanks for coming. Thank <laughs> you.